0: Sleepcoolnow.com 1212.
1: This is the World According to Zig Podcast for January 5th, 2020. My name is John Ziegler, I'm the host of the show. We can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is www.freespeechbroadcasting.com. I hope you enjoyed uh, the Christmas break. We've been uh, taking a couple weeks off at the end of last year, and this is our first episode of the new year and the new decade. Make sure you check out my other podcast, which is the Individual One podcast. You can find that both at my Twitter feed, Sigmund Freud, as well as our website, freespeechbroadcasting.com. And as far as 2020 is concerned, (laughs) I have to say that, um, you know, I I live a very strange life. If you're familiar with this podcast, you know that all too well. I can't remember ever going into a year that is more uncertain about how it's going to play out for me. There are uh, all sorts of different scenarios, some of which are potentially really good and some of which are potentially really bad. And I don't know which way we're going to go here. I mean, I'm generally a pessimist by nature, so nothing will surprise me. Uh, in fact, only the, the good scenarios j- tend to surprise me. But I, I start this new decade off with some optimism that this could be a very good year. But on the other hand, things could all very easily fall apart. And as far as this podcast is concerned, I'm not sure, quite honestly, where we're going with this. There is a possibility, I've been told a very strong possibility, that we'll be starting a new podcast that may replace this one, at least momentarily, sometime in the next few weeks or months. But I don't know that for sure. That's basically the way my life works. Anything can go wrong at any time. But that is the tentative plan at this point. I, I really like doing the World According to Zig podcast. And if. We were able to do the World According to Zig podcast in a location that was closer to where I live. I think at this point, because of the Individual One podcast dealing with most of the political news involving Donald Trump, I think I might just turn the podcast into uh, a show with my seven-year-old daughter, Grace. Like, every week, that might actually be more interesting and more entertaining, and she might enjoy it uh, more than, uh, than anything else I could possibly do. Uh, but logistically, that's just not possible. She actually asked me this morning whether or not uh, she could come on the show again, because she was on our last episode, which was just uh, before Christmas. And That's where I really want to start uh, this episode, because I've been talking a lot over the last several weeks about Christmas and how big of a deal it is in our house, because I got a seven-year-old daughter, Grace, and a two-year-old daughter, Diana. and I have talked a lot about this issue of, okay, is Grace still going to believe in Santa Claus? Now, my wife and other people close to me think I'm way overanalyzing this. This is making too big of a deal out of this. To me, it is a big deal because symbolically, it's a huge rite of passage. And as a dad, it's also one of those mile markers on the way to being a teenager when you lose your daughter forever. And so I fully acknowledge this is mostly about me, but it is also in large part about her because I I love seeing the wonder in her eyes, the excitement over Christmas. And without Santa Claus, I don't know if that's going to exist, and I also hate the idea of lying to her and creating this myth, and I also fully acknowledge I'm the biggest hypocrite on Santa Claus in the world, because philosophically, I don't even believe that Santa Claus should exist. I think there's all sorts of problems with Santa Claus, but because my daughter's so into it, and because my my wife is into it, I have done everything I possibly can to help facilitate and maintain the Santa Claus myth. And I have been uh, very skeptical that Grace, who has been very big into investigations this year, was going to be able to get through this Christmas without some very serious doubts about Santa Claus. And that was going to make me sad because I wanted at least one Christmas where she was all in and where Diana uh, had a pretty good clue about what what was going on. Last year, Diana was terrified of Santa Claus and really didn't understand the whole concept. She didn't fully understand it this year until after Christmas. Now I think she gets that, wow, this Santa Claus dude is a a great guy and some great things can happen uh, because of Santa. But before Christmas, she was still kind of like, okay, what's all the hubbub about? Uh, I don't really fully understand this. Why is Grace so hyped up about this? And uh, I just wanted there to be one year and by and large, we kind of got that this year. Uh, you know, again, Grace wasn't, uh, I mean, Grace is about as in as I would have possibly expected. Diana, not fully up to speed yet. Uh, she certainly will be next year. I don't know whether or not we're going to get another year out of Grace. That's another story for another day. But just to give you an indication of just how deeply in our family is and how Grace still is. I guess the, the part of this whole Santa Claus myth that was concerning me the most was the elf on the shelf. Now, for those of you who don't know, the elf on the shelf is this very strange um, tradition that a lot of people have picked up on in recent years where you have this uh, essentially just a stuffed doll uh, that looks like an elf who goes around in different places in your house, and different families apparently use the elf differently. In our house, he's a spy. He's a spy for Santa to keep an eye on the kids, to make sure that Santa has a report on what's going on. Now, to me, this was always very dangerous and a potential security uh, breach at any moment, because the the elf is just a stuffed doll. There's nothing special about it. It doesn't even move. Uh, And and we've been using this for several years. And I've actually gone back into the archives of my uh, phone, and I realized that Grace... While she has loved her elf, who she calls Eli, for several years, actually started expressing skepticism about uh, Eli, her elf, back when she was like three or four years old. At one point, I, I wrote on Facebook that she had said, I think he's a fake. And I'm thinking, there's no way Eli is going to survive another couple of years. There's just no way, especially when this year her whole existence has been about investigating Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and the Kraken and Chico Cabra and all all sorts of different uh, mysteries. She's really into this, and she's not bad at it. So I'm thinking, there's just no way that when we bring Eli out this year as a seven-year-old, she's not going to look at Eli and go, what the hell is this? By the way, she might actually... Use a worse word than that because the, her parents tend to use a little profanity, but that's another story for another day. But so when Eli came out this year, I thought, oh man, this is this is all going to collapse. This is going to be a major security breach. Uh, she's going to realize Eli's a fraud. Uh, Santa's going to be a fraud then because once you realize Eli's gone, it's a domino effect. And, and 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 by the way, I didn't even I wouldn't even mind if Eli went away because Eli is a pain in the ass. I mean almost every day. I, I give him a, I'm in charge of Eli. He's in my closet. Uh, I uh, Every day, and I give him a rest occasionally, mainly because I need a rest and also because I, I don't want any more security breaches than, than possible or opportunities for security breaches than possible. But I would say about uh, 18 to 20 of the days of December, uh, Eli comes out at, in, a, in a semi-hiding place, to be the spy for Santa Claus. And then our tradition is that on New Year's Eve, he's making sure that the chimney is ready for Santa to come down the next day. So on the last day that Eli is around, before he has to go back to the North Pole in order to give his final report on Grace and Diana, he is in our little fireplace, which is nowhere near large enough for Big Jolly Santa to come down, even in theory. But Grace, for some reason, hasn't put that all together yet. Uh, or maybe she has not she thinks he comes through the front door. I don't know. But the point is that we put Eli in there, in the in the logs, And uh, that's always been his traditional goodbye place. And we have videotaped the the goodbye that Grace uh, gives uh, Eli. And over the last several years, I've noticed that the tears seem to be less legitimate. There was always tears on Grace's part, but they seem to be less legitimate. Bizarrely, this year they seem to be even more legitimate and um, I recorded it, and I'm about to play a clip. Uh, you know, I don't know how much you'll be able to get of this because obviously this is just audio on a podcast, but I want you to envision Grace and Diana in front of our little uh, fireplace, and Diana, for some reason, is trying to close <laughs> the the fireplace because it's, it's open a little bit so that you can see Eli to say goodbye. Well, she's completely unemotional. All she wants to do is close the damn thing. And it's bugging the hell out of Grace because it's preventing Grace from giving a proper goodbye. And judge for yourself just how much Grace still very much deeply believes and loves uh, her elf Eli. This was on Christmas Eve. Diana, are you going to say goodbye? <laughs> Diana, say goodbye, Eli.
2: Goodbye.
1: Grace, you okay? Hey, it. let
2: me say goodbye.
1: Well, you can say goodbye now. <laughs> say goodbye.
2: Don't pull it. Bye, Eli. Don't I love you. Love you. Don't
1: touch him back. Nice. Grace, we'll see him next year. Um, Bye, Eli. Thank you for coming. We appreciate it.
2: Bye, Eli. Bye, Eli.
1: Diana just wants to be done with this. (laughs) Diana, you should say goodbye. Diana, you should say say Merry Christmas.
2: (laughs) Merry Christmas.
1: Alright, Thank you, Eli. Bye, bye. Boy, I I don't think that Grace has ever said I love you to me quite like she says that to Eli as a seven year old. And you know, when I hear that, it's very conflicting because you know it's it's gut wrenching to me to see her uh, go through pain. Um, and I, I wonder, okay, uh, does this mean we might be able to get another year? Because that sounds like a, a girl who's still deeply in this. But then I also think about. Oh my gosh! How terrible is it going to be when she figures this all out? And uh, is she going to blame me uh, for having uh, fooled her? Uh, I, I don't know how that's all going to go down, but um, and I do. I, I again, I have to say that a lot of me will miss. The idea of wonder, the idea of there being um, magic in the world. Uh, I'm a big believer that adult life most of the time sucks, and that uh, you got to hold on to the joy of being a kid as, as long as you can. And this is a large part of that. So a lot of conflicting emotions when I even listened to that, and certainly when when I witnessed it. Um, But I I also love Grace's loyalty there because she's very, very loyal to to her elf. And uh, I also thought it was kind of funny that Diana really didn't give a crap. Now, of course, Diana didn't give a crap largely because she didn't know what the payoff was at this point because this is still Christmas Eve. And, of course, the next morning, there's a massive payoff, and Diana's eyes were literally uh, opened as to how awesome this whole Christmas thing is. And so Diana had a great time on Christmas. Grace had a pretty darn good time on Christmas. They both got pretty much everything they wanted. And uh, by Christmas standards, you know, it doesn't always go real well because it's very high intense emotions. And high expectations, and high expectations are always very, very dangerous in life in every aspect of it, but by and large Christmas went very well. Diana loved it so much that when we finally got home from uh, the in-laws' Christmas party, we're two hours two hours after Diana's normal bedtime. And I want to set the scene for you here. So if you listened to the last episode of the podcast, you know that my featured guests were mostly Grace and to a lesser degree, Diana Ziegler. Diana made her debut as a two-year-old. It might have been a bit premature. I didn't feel real good about how I did in asking Diana the questions. I thought I should have asked her different questions. In retrospect, I should have tried to get her to sing because she loves to sing. Was, uh, several <laughs> pretty good. She can even sing from Phantom of the Opera at two years old, uh, which is what I should have gone and and have her do. So I didn't feel great about it from my perspective, but clearly she felt really good about it from her standpoint, because it's now Christmas night, two hours after her bedtime. It's several days after we've done the podcast. This is completely unprovoked. This is without any conversations really uh, extensively about how she did on the podcast or as she refers to it, the radio show. She, She gets home, again, two hours after her normal bedtime, which we're very strict on. She jumps on her trampoline. She's jumping on her trampoline and she's holding a voice Synthesizer machine toy that she got for Christmas. So she's jumping on the trampoline, holding the voice synthesizer toy, and she starts in very Donald Trumpian fashion, starts bragging out of the blue, completely unprovoked, about what a great job she did on the quote-unquote radio show. Now, I'm not sure you're going to be able to fully understand what she says, but you're just going to have to trust me. She just starts spouting into this synthesizer, I did great on the radio show, and I decided I had to get some of this on video, and I finally did, and here's what that sounded like. (laughs) You were great on the radio show. Yep. <laughs> I thought so too, Diana. We got to scream and scream like that. So Diana has uh, the first rule of being a good talk show host down, which is to claim greatness, even if you're not that great. Because as Trump has proven, if you claim to be great, people will believe it. At least some people will believe it. And You only need some people to believe that you're great, and then eventually you're great, and you're a success, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So big things on the horizon for Diana Sickler in the talk show host field, which I hope she will never get into because it's a horrendous business, but that's another story for another day. So that was uh, that was Christmas. Today, of course, is probably the saddest day of the year in the Ziegler household because today is the last day of Christmas vacation for Grace. It's the day uh, when I believe we're taking down the Christmas tree. Uh, Thankfully, I'm doing the podcast and won't be part of that. I'm hoping that the tree will be gone by the time I get home. Uh, But Grace does not take this well. Uh, Grace already started crying a couple of times when we started to take down the decorations from the house. Uh, And what I always try to tell her, and I think this is pretty good advice, when she cries about the end of Christmas, I say, Grace, as long as you're crying when Christmas ends, that means it's still special. The day you don't cry when Christmas ends is when it's lost its magic, it's no longer special. And so you should think that it's a good thing that you're going to miss Christmas. And that means that by next uh, late November, early December... It'll still be special because if you didn't miss it, it wouldn't be special. Now, intellectually, she seems to grasp that emotionally, it doesn't really impact the tears, and I'm sure there will be tears today, but as I said it's when we put down the Christmas tree and there's no tears that we know that Christmas really will be over, at least uh, for Grace Ziegler. And my guess is that this whole thing is not going to last as long for Diana, partially because she's the second and partially because I think her personality is a little bit different than Grace's. So I'm hopeful um, that maybe we'll get another year out of this next year, and that would be the year, but I'm also Uh, bracing for reality, which is kind of the way I look at all existence. (laughs) I'm trying to be as hopeful as possible, hoping for the best, expecting the worst, or bracing for it. Uh, And that's uh, Christmas uh, 2019. Now, uh, shifting gears, I mentioned in the last podcast that because of a crazy new California law, and it is crazy, dealing with the gig economy and targeting freelancers, I, uh, in the coming year, am going to be limited to 35 articles that I can write for any one news outlet. Now, over the last several years, I have been a columnist, a quote-unquote senior columnist for Mediaite, which is a uh, news media website out of New York City run by Dan Abrams of ABC News. And uh, I normally do 120 columns a year. That's what my I guess you would call it my agreement or my contract uh, calls for, uh, which is 10 columns a month. Now, that's a lot of columns to write in a month, especially when you're someone like me who doesn't take the easy path. I don't know if you picked up on that, but I'm a contrarian by nature, and I almost almost will never write a column unless I think it's something that very few people or if anyone else is saying. Because if other people are saying it, why do I need to say it? So coming up with 10 compelling topics a month where you're saying something that's true that no one else is, that's tough. So, but I'm, you know, it's election year coming up. So my guess is 120 columns this year would probably not have been that difficult, especially as an anti-Trump conservative. But now because of this crazy California law, I can only do 35 columns for Mediate. Well, that means that uh, there's good and bad. The good part of that is that I am available to be able to write for other outlets. And an outlet that is interested in me writing for them, I guess up to 35 columns this year, is called The Bulwark. Now The Bulwark, for those of you who don't know, is a conservative website that is run by anti-Trump conservatives. Uh, Bill Kristol is involved in this. Uh, Charlie Kirk is involved with this, former radio talk show host. Uh, I'm sure you've seen him on uh, MSNBC uh, and elsewhere. Uh, and, uh, and the guy who runs that website is a fan of my work, or at least has been a fan of my work, and so uh, they asked me to, to write a, a column for them, and I, I wrote about my holiday experiences with the Trump cult, because I have extensive experience with the Trump cult, uh, and I wrote a column outlining, among other things, the four levels of the Trump cult. Uh, My wife is level one, my in-laws are level two, my in-laws' friends are level three, and level four I deal with quite a bit on Twitter. And I talk about some of the experiences I had at uh, holiday get-togethers with those people who are very big fans of Donald Trump. And so I wrote the column, and I didn't honestly think that much uh, of what was going to be the response. Uh, The response seemed to be you know, pretty good, what I expected, the normal... Uh, people who like my work were liking it, uh, sharing it on social media, uh, saying that they 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 enjoyed it, they thought it was it made sense, and everything was fine. And so uh, we go to a a party, uh, oddly enough, with my in-laws, having having nothing to do with anything really. Uh, yesterday afternoon, it was just a, a get-together, kind of post-holidays. And uh, so we make the drive to, which is about an hour long, uh, and I'm thinking everything's perfectly fine. And I get to the party, and I'm trying to find, you know, this is at the very end of the, the Bills-Texans game, which is an overtime, and the Patriots-Titans uh, uh, game hasn't even started yet. And so I'm trying to figure out how to get the television on <laughs> to, to that channel, which is much more difficult in this day and age. And all of a sudden I realize that my, my Twitter feed is blowing up. And I'm like, okay, what the hell is going on? And incredibly long story short, uh, I am being attacked from all sorts of different people, uh, allegedly of some credibility on Twitter, uh, because I guess, and this is the best I can figure out what happened, is that my enemies were seeing this as a dangerous development that the bulwark was giving me a platform to write on. And I guess, in theory, hiring me to write columns, because I guess in their minds, the bulwark is a step up from Mediate, which I don't even know if that's accurate or not. I mean, they're, they're both well-respected websites. I sense about the same uh, level of traffic. I, I, but for whatever reason, For whatever reason, my enemies started getting scared about this. That, uh uh-oh, Ziegler's getting more credibility. We must stop this. We must destroy him. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? So the way this works in cancel culture is that whenever somebody who uh, you know people hate uh, gets a new position that they want to uh, destroy them and want to remove them from, people start taking things that they have done or said in the past, usually totally out of context, because that's the nature of Twitter in uh, 280 characters, and they start uh, attacking them with a bunch of bullshit. Well, with me... Uh, of course, the easiest way to attack me is he's a Jerry Sandusky supporter. He's a Michael Jackson supporter. He's a Matt Lauer supporter. And as I detailed a, a, a month or so ago, the, uh, which is the most ridiculous of all, he's a Holocaust denier. <laughs> which is just unbelievable that people can possibly think that. You cannot be serious! I mean, this is all based upon a tweet I sent six years ago where I was defending some professor who was being attacked for even questioning the number of six million that were killed in the Holocaust. I have... Zero question that the Holocaust occurred, zero question that it was it was horrific. My my only point here was are we really going to destroy somebody for questioning a number that's rounded to a million? To a million
2: It's just flat out ridiculous.
1: <laughs> that's the only point of this. So is it Holocaust denial if you think that six million and one people were killed or or 5,999,999 is that holocaust denial? I mean it's it's all absurd. This was purely an issue of academic freedom about being able to find out okay, I don't really care that much, but what's the real number? But these are all things that people are pulling out of the woodwork. And at first, it's, you know, it's annoying um, and, it, you know, it's getting some traction, but I, I don't really know what to do with this because, you know, my instincts are always to fight back because it's all bullshit. Uh, but I also know that it's very difficult to do that uh, with one Twitter feed, and I've only got like 42,000 followers or something like that. Uh, they're, you know, I've got good followers. They're very loyal. But it, from a sheer number standpoint, I mean, in Twitter, you basically need your own gang or your own cult. It's kind of like a gang fight. And so, you know, in order to get into a fight, you need people on your side. And since I take unpopular positions, nobody with a blue check mark is going to take my side, or very few are, because it's just no risk-reward ratio in their favor there. And so one of the things that uh, I realized is that the person that's spearheading this is a guy by the name, I think his name is Luke Thompson. Now, I had never heard of Luke Thompson before. He's a writer of, I don't know, of some note. He didn't have that many followers. Uh, But he is brutally attacking me. I mean, he tweeted at me, eat shit and die, Ziegler, out of nowhere. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And then he's he's tweeting all this bull crap about uh, Jerry Sandusky and uh, I, I guess he must have been do- also doing the Matt Lauer thing because I later find out that his obvious motivation is he is the fiance of Brooke Neville's, who is Matt Lauer's accuser in Ronan Farrow's book. <laughs> So now I'm like, "Oh, okay. I see what's going on here." And uh I tweet at him what I thought was <laughs> pretty nice, actually. I tweeted, oh, okay. I now understand what's going on here. Uh, You're the fiance of of, uh, Matt Lauer's accuser. I didn't even use her name, even though it's very public. Uh, And I say, hey, look, um, you and I should probably communicate because I have some information that I would want to know if I I was in your position. Happy to talk, (laughs) exclamation point. Now, you no, know, I thought that was handling it pretty well. Like I you know, I'm 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 actually offering to help you. I have information you might wanna know. And by the way, I do. I mean if I was in his position I I would want to talk to me. If I was about to get married to Brooke Nevels, I would want to talk to John Ziegler because John Ziegler has spoken to Matt Lauer for at least 50 hours in person on the phone and done extensive research on the allegation made in Ronan Farrow's book of, of a rape uh, that M- Brooke Nevels gave to Ronan Farrow. A, 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 an allegation, I can assure you, is not credible and that Ronan Farrow did a horrendous job, horrendous job reporting on. And I am with 100% certainty and comfort in making that uh, assertion. I'm positive of it, uh, and it's not close. And so if I was in his position, I would want to talk to me. So I'm making an offer. Now I realize I'm making it sarcastically because I know he's never going to take me up on it, but I'm still making an offer. At this point, now everything explodes because one of my arch enemies, Yasser Ali, uh, gets alerted to the idea that I have committed a mortal sin. I have attacked, get this, I have attacked the fiance of a rape survivor. Now, (laughs) let's, let's, let's go through the levels of insanity here. First of all, I didn't attack anybody. I offered to talk to him. I said, oh, I now understand why you're on this virtue signaling crusade against me. It's because you are Brooke Neville's, again, not using her name, fiance. Let's talk. I got some information. That's not an attack. That's number one. Number two, there's no evidence that Brooke Neville's is a rape survivor. Just because Ronan Farrow says that... You are, doesn't make it true, but let's be clear, Yasser Ali, who works, I think, for Huffington Post, he's basically the, the uh, B-list Ronan Farrow. I believe he's also gay, like Ronan Farrow, uh, and uh, he's, he's at the forefront of this whole Me Too thing. So, you know, the, the first string all-pro Me Too uh, gay male reporter is Ronan Farrow. Uh, the second string is Yasser Ali and Yasser Ali has been attacking me for years. He's attacked me on everything. Um, Michael Jackson, where he's completely out to lunch, Uh, uh, Jerry Sandusky, where he doesn't have a clue, and Matt Lauer, where I actually think, my guess is he's afraid he's wrong, and that's why he's attacking me, and that's why people are afraid. People like him are afraid of me gaining credibility. That was one of the takeaways of this whole shitstorm, and it was huge last night is, man, my enemies must really be terrified. Uh, Of me gaining credibility. They must have deep-seated fear, because that's the only way I can make sense of their insane motivations here and the levels to which they will go to attack me. Now, I get that everyone on Twitter loves the virtue signal, and everyone loves to get the pitchforks out for a good uh, mob attack uh, and a a, uh, culture canceling, which is what this was an attempt. This was an attempted uh, canceling of John Ziegler. Uh, but the, that doesn't explain the level of hatred, the level of vitriol, the level of profanity, the level of insanity, the lack of any care at all about what, about what the facts are, or what the case is, uh, or, or you know what my motivations would be. And so Yasser Ali starts on this series of attacks. And of course, all these other blue check mark virtue signaling media morons jump right on board. They have no idea. They have no idea about me. They have no idea about the facts of any of these cases. They don't know about the Matt Lauer case. They don't know about the Jerry Sandusky case, the Michael Jackson case. They don't know. Any of that, and let me just give you an example of of one of the tweets that Yasser tweeted at me, and this was one of his uh, <laughs> this least profanity uh, laced. I don't know if there is any profanity in here. Uh, no, there's no profanity in this one, but most of the, I mean, he, he called me all sorts of names uh, and used all sorts of profanity. But this one is the one that pretty much kicked things off. Uh, He tweets uh, to his followers, Zygmunt Freud, which is my horrendous Twitter handle. Zygmunt Freud is a horrible man. I'm a horrible man. Okay. He's never met me. He's never spoken to me. I have offered to speak to him. He has refused to accept uh, my invitation to do so because I've wanted to talk to him about all these cases and just explain why I know he's wrong. But I'm a horrible man who he has never spoken to. Now, right away. A reporter, a reporter of some note and credibility, is declaring someone he has never spoken to to be a horrible man. Now, what is he basing this notion that I'm a horrible man on? He's a horrible man who believes Jerry Sandusky is innocent. Well, first of all, I don't believe it. I know it because I've studied the case for eight years in ways that no one else has. And by the way, everyone else who's studied it extensively and objectively has come to the same basic conclusion. But think about how absurd that is. I'm a horrible man because I believe someone is innocent? You cannot be serious! That makes me a horrible man. I mean, even if he was guilty, I would hope that wouldn't make me a horrible man unless... I was spouting this belief with zero foundation, zero knowledge. That would make me stupid. It might make me a bad person if I was doing so maliciously, but that's clearly and obviously not the case. Plus, I happen to be right. Then he writes, he has repeatedly attacked survivors of sexual misconduct and their supporters. Really? Uh, Give me an example. Just please somebody give me an example. I give me one example of where I I have attacked. Again I take issue with this definition of attack. I have attacked survivors of sexual misconduct. No no, I have questioned the credibility of sex abuse accusers and I have never in, in my very strong opinion been wrong. I have never been wrong because by the time I publicly question someone's credibility, I've already done the research. I already know. And there's nobody that I'm even remotely concerned about that I have ever named and said this person's allegation is not credible that I have any concerns with them actually being a victim or a survivor, as he says, of sexual misconduct. And then he adds, and their supporters. So wait a minute. So if you attack, meaning you confront, you question. That's what he means by attack, because that's what I do. I mean, at most I confront. Mostly I question. Mostly I try to get the truth about. Supporters? So now supporters of sex abuse accusers are given carte blanche... Uh, protection, which I guess is—he also gave protection to uh, this this Luke guy that somehow was illegitimate of an accuser, because that's where he goes next. So after he says he's repeatedly attacked survivors of sexual misconduct and their supporters, he says now he's attacking the fiance of one of Matt Lauer's accusers. Oh my gosh. So let's go through that. Attacking. Again, didn't attack. I said, oh, so this is why you want to attack me. tweeted to me out of the blue, eat shit and die. That's an attack. Okay? That's an attack. That's the definition of an attack. I never threatened him. I never used profanity. I said, oh, now I get it. You're on this virtue signaling uh, crusade against me because of who your fiance is. So that's not an attack. But more importantly than the uh, the bastardization of the attack word, this idea that somehow being the fiancé of Matt Lauer's accuser. By the way, there's only one. That's another factual inaccuracy that a reporter ought to be embarrassed about. Only one person ever accused Matt Lauer of rape. The, so the idea that he's saying accusers is false, misleading, and purposely so. But the idea that you are the fiancé, of an accuser gives you immunity from criticism or that someone should even be pointing out that that might be your motivation for attacking you and trying to deplatform you on Twitter uh, is absurd. It's absurd on its face. But this is how the, the terrorists, and that's what these people are, this is how the terrorists on the Me Too side work. They can only win if everyone is terrified, because they're terrorists, terrified of questioning them. And so if they can give protection not just to the accused, but to the accused supporters and their fiancés, well now they're home free. Because now... There's no way to possibly beat them. They've already created rules that are impossible to prove your innocence on. They've been brilliant in that regard. But now you can't even question or defend yourself against attacks more accurately from the fiancé of somebody who accused Matt Lauer, a person you know exceedingly well and your story you know exceedingly well more than any other human being on the planet, and you know that that story of that fiancé is false. I mean, the levels of absurdity here have no end. And then he finishes it by saying, great job in hiring him, and then he tags the bulwark online. So he says, I'm a horrible man because I believe something. He lies about me repeatedly attacking survivors of sexual abuse, adds in their supporters, falsely claims I'm attacking the fiancé of one of Matt Lauer's accusers, which he inaccurately refers to in the plural, and then he makes the very, very clear attempt to try to get me fired from the bulwark. This is what I have to deal with. And then this gets retweeted hundreds of times. Other virtue signaling media morons jump on it. And and let's face it, I got a lot of enemies because I don't give a shit about having friends. And I only care about the truth. And when you only care about the truth, you're going to get attacked. I don't care about getting attacked. I don't. I'm a big boy. I got asbestos skin. Bring it on. Part of why I can do what I do is I don't like people. And when you don't like people, you don't care about being loved. See, that's the problem with the vast majority of the news media in this day and age. They want to be loved. Someone did not love Yasser Ali enough. Someone in his life. And so he desperately needs to be loved. And so when he virtue signals and he gets a couple of hundred retweets, it makes him feel good because he's a good person and he's feeling the love because he has shown everyone his virtue. And these clueless morons who think that, oh my gosh, there's nobody who could possibly believe that Jerry Sandusky or Michael Jackson or Matt Lauer is innocent. They must be a bad person. That's the only explanation. No. The other explanation is that they've studied all three of those cases extensively. They have information that you don't have, no one else has, and they know exactly what did, did not happen, and they've researched it in a logical way. But Yasser Ali has never done that. He knows none of the facts, but facts don't matter. And so I don't know what the implications, of any, are going to be of this, but it was just such a classic example of this mob mentality that now takes over, especially on Twitter, in this day and age where the truth cannot win. The people with the pitchforks have the ultimate advantage, especially when those who have the largest followings and the blue check marks next to their name, they're the ones that have something to protect So they're never going to take a controversial opinion and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because when everyone is afraid to offer a contrarian opinion, then guess what? It's perceived as if there is no contrarian opinion, that the other side doesn't have merit because if it did, we would be hearing it. That's not true. That's false in this day and age, especially in the realm of sexual abuse. Because everyone is so afraid. Fear is the number one factor here. I get comments all the time from people off the air or off of Twitter or direct message or email saying, Boy, man, you're so right. I just, I wish I could say it publicly. <laughs> no one wants to do that because no one wants to get attacked like John Ziegler. So, Again, it, it, I, it, it, I, I even hesitate to talk about it because it feels narcissistic, but a large part of what this podcast is, it's about my life and the craziness of it. Uh, but I do think that this episode shows a much larger reality uh, about why it is that an unpopular truth cannot win and, and how it is that people like me will not take unpopular positions because it's just not worth it. Even I, because it ruined my night last night. I mean, I wanted to watch the Patriots game, I was at a party, and instead I'm spending the whole goddamn night re- responding to fucking morons uh, who know nothing about these cases and where I'm literally the world's foremost expert in a couple of them, and, and I, knowing that it's not going to do any good, and knowing, in fact, it's probably going to make things worse. It's insane making. I even got in a fight with my wife on the ride home because of this. It completely ruined my day. Ruined my night. I didn't even get to enjoy the Patriots losing. I mean, so, I mean, so it's even I'm thinking, you know what? This just isn't fucking worth it. This just isn't fucking worth it. I can totally understand why no one would take a contrarian view on all these things. And then I always get back to, well, but if I don't do it, who else will? And I don't want to live in in a country where no one's willing to do that. So every time I'm ready to quit, I'm like, well, Jesus Christ, I wish somebody else would do this. But I understand why no one else will, because no one else wants this. No one else can endure this. I don't know if I can still endure it much longer, frankly, uh, but uh, at least for today, I'm still standing. Now, speaking of these stories, uh, I, I, I don't usually talk about fairly minor developments in the Penn State case, partially because there is talk of some pretty major projects going forward uh, involving the whole Penn State, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky uh, case. I don't know for sure that they're going to happen, but they're being talked about extensively. But I I wanted to make an exception uh, today because I believe this is a brand new video uh, that is about the number one accuser in the Jerry Sandusky case that is just so freaking bizarre that I have to articulate it and and break it down, because I think this will go a long way in showing what a fraud the whole case is now, like everything, this requires a, a pretty significant amount of context. The entire Jerry Sandusky case revolves around two allegations: the Mike McCQuery witnessing of an alleged assault in a shower, which is a totally different story in for a billion different reasons is not credible, and I've done a lot of work on that, and Malcolm Gladwell, in his new book, uh, Talking to Strangers, backs me up on that. The other pillar, if you will, of the, the case against him is victim number one, Aaron Fisher. Aaron Fisher was the only accuser in this case for two years. It was a case that was going nowhere. They were ready to drop the investigation. Aaron Fisher was not being backed up by any other accuser, despite the fact that they were questioning lots and lots of former members of the Second Mile charity, which Jerry Sandusky was the the co-founder of. And this was allegedly, you know, in retrospect now, where he was grooming his victims. Well, Aaron was in the Second Mile charity, and Aaron made a very vague allegation at first to his school, not to the police, and then eventually, he tells his therapist, Mike Gillum. He tells his therapist, "Yes." In response to a yes and or no question about whether or not Jerry Sandusky did Jerry Sandusky ever force you into oral sex? And Aaron Fisher eventually says, "Yes." Doesn't give any details. Doesn't say when. Doesn't say how. Just says yes. And Mike Gillum, the therapist, decides jackpot. Okay, I've got a victim on my hands here. This then. Sets off a domino effect where Aaron eventually testifies to the grand jury twice horrendously. He's not able to tell a story, he cannot answer questions, he breaks down. Now, this is, in my view, hilariously viewed if anything about this case can be hilarious, is hilariously viewed by his supporters as evidence that he's dealing with the trauma of his abuse. I would suggest when you know his full story, it's actually Aaron is dealing with the idea that no one's going to fucking believe him, that he's being forced into this story by his mother because his mother wants money and he's afraid of what's going to happen to Jerry Sandusky, his friend. And that's clear from his own book. Now, his book is entitled Silent No More. Now, one of the most bizarre, and there are many bizarre aspects of this book, is that it was co-written not just by Aaron Fisher and his mother, But by Mike Gillum, his therapist. Now, no one I have ever heard of, I've never heard of a situation where a sex abuse victim in a high profile case has co written a book with their therapist afterwards. Uh, This is clearly inappropriate, so much so that Gillum would end up losing his contract with the state of Pennsylvania because of the conflict of interest that this created. And it's important to point out, Gillum. Was the therapist for not just Aaron Fisher, but the victim who the prosecution would later say was the star? Bizarrely, because you can't have a star other than Aaron Fisher. He's the number one accuser. He has to be your star. But they didn't like Aaron Fisher by the time trial came around because Aaron Fisher was full of crap and everybody knew it. So they decided the victim number four was their star. Well, Mike Gillum was his therapist too. So anyway, back to Silent No More. So Mike Gillum, the therapist who nurtures this, uh, and and I believe facilitates this allegation against Jerry Sandusky, not just writes the book with Aaron Fisher, and I urge you to read the book. To me, the book was the final nail in the coffin. When I finally read the book, I was kicking myself for not reading it sooner because obviously this was evidence uh, that uh, Jerry Sandusky was in, innocent because the whole book is Bull crap! And when you know the full story, you go, whoa, 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 wait a minute, hold on, they've just revealed themselves to be uh, not credible and a bunch of liars. So anyway, uh, so not just, we don't just have the book, which I urge you to read, but Mike Gillum decides this is his claim to fame, and he's going to create the Silent No More Foundation. Now, the Silent No More Foundation appears to be uh, essentially a, a, a foundation dedicated to helping the survivors of sexual abuse. That's fine. Great. You know, as long as they're real uh, survivors of sexual abuse, I'm all for, for that. But now I, I have a very different view of what the Silent No More Foundation is really all about, because in the last week or so, they released a video that's essentially a commercial It is a commercial for the Silent No More Foundation done by Aaron Fisher, victim number one in the Jerry Sandusky case. And when you know the details of Aaron Fisher and you watch this, you go, what the living hell is this all about? First of all, it's it's bizarre that he's doing a commercial for this foundation. And it feels very much, I think you'll agree because I'm about to play it for you, it feels very much as if this is a commercial for victims of sex abuse to come to Mike Gillum so that he might be able to turn this into some more money or more publicity uh, in the future. It's interesting to note that the Silent No More Foundation on YouTube has one follower, one follower, and the video I'm about to play you currently has 156 views. So this is not a big organization, but the video is quite well produced. It took some money to produce this. Now, let's also give some more context. Aaron Fisher, and this becomes relevant because of how he is going to describe his current life. Aaron Fisher is in the process of a divorce. He's not just getting divorced. His wife has accused him of assault, abuse, and rape. Now, I don't believe that he's going to be criminally accused of rape for reasons that are uh, suspicious to say the least, but he already has been accused and been found uh, to be guilty of violations of his protection from abuse decree, which is essentially a restraining order. Twice, in Pennsylvania they call it a, a protection from abuse. Twice he has violated that protection from abuse against his estranged wife. Twice he has been found by a court to be in violation of it and find. So, this is a man in the process of a divorce who is accused by his wife credibly of rape and assault. I've seen the photographs, I've spoken to her extensively. Who twice is so unhinged, he has violated on social media. This is why he was found to be in violation, because it was clear cut. On social media, violating his protection of abuse, making uh, uh, so, uh, essentially um, threats against his estranged wife. Didn't surprise me because this is a man who has threatened me with death. He has threatened me on social media with running me over with a truck. He has also, with his shirt off, draped in dollar bills in a bed, given the middle finger to the to the camera in a photograph that was posted on Facebook that was clearly directed at me. This is a bad dude. All right, that's who Aaron Fisher is. Now a lot of people say, "Well, John." He's a bad dude because Jerry Sandusky turned him into that. Okay, well, um, first of all, there's no evidence of that where there should be, but there's also voluminous amounts of evidence that there's another narrative that makes a hell of a lot more sense. So let's get to this commercial. So Aaron Fisher, this starts with Aaron Fisher working on his cars. Now, I found this to be particularly hilarious because the cars, I believe, are the motivation for all that happened here. He told all of his friends, and I have interviews with friends of his at the time of the allegations, that his dream was to own lots of fancy sports cars. And guess what's happened? He owns lots of fancy sports cars, one of which he just wrecked in a ditch. He almost killed himself. Which is interesting from another standpoint, because guess what? In the book, Silent No More, they talk about Aaron's other car accident, which almost kills his two buddies that were in the car with him, in a car that was given to him, it was an old jalopy, by Jerry Sandusky. Well, in the book, they actually accused Jerry Sandusky of sabotaging his car so he would kill himself and no longer be able to testify against him. This is a ludicrous Allegation to begin with. The police found no evidence of that. But here's where the new car accident, I think, is relevant. Wait a minute. This is a guy who just drove his $100,000 GT sports car into a ditch. Maybe he's just a really bad fucking driver. (laughs) Or maybe he's got a drug problem, which is also quite possible. Anyway, I found that to be amazing because wait a minute. So hold on. Maybe we can now reevaluate the story of the car accident in the book so this video starts with him working on his sports cars and it starts with aaron basically telling the story of how good his life is now because he's getting to work on his sports cars so this is how this starts
2: i'm trying to live my life the way that i want to and doing things that i find fun and exciting i work on cars race cars all that time that you spent Working on something, busted knuckles, cut up hands, to get it out there and test it and see if it works. And when it does work, it's all worth it in the end. I was classified as victim one in the Jerry Sandusky case. I was the first one to say that Jerry Sandusky sexually abused me.
1: All right, let's hold it right there. I was the first one to say Jerry Sandusky abused me to say Jerry Sandusky abused me. Is that really how you would describe it? If you had been, let's, let's, let's review what Aaron's allegation is. Aaron's allegation is that from the ages of, and his timeline shifted dramatically, so I'm trying to be as generous as possible here, from the ages of 11 to 15, he was forced to give Jerry Sandusky oral sex, he said at trial, at least 100 times, which is absurd. Uh, for many reasons, but he's going to describe this as, I was the first to say I was sexually abused by Jerry Sandusky. Make a note of that. Let's move on and let's listen to how he describes that abuse and very bizarre and I think telling imagery.
2: Picture a small child, the monster under your bed, you know, you tell your parents there's something there. You know, they they look and they look and they can't find it. Now, picture it again and again and again, just on repeat. For me,
1: Jerry was my monster under the bed. Jerry was my monster under the bed. Okay, first of all, a monster under the bed is what? Imaginary. It's not real. There are no monsters under the bed the bed. Number two, he was not a small child. They tried to make him into a small child, but he came forward with his allegation while still being best buddies with Jerry Sandusky at 15 years old. Who, who, who has imaginary monsters under the bed at 15? No, this is absurd. This is is a concocted narrative that has no emotion. Where's the emotion? There's none here. He's telling a story. So let's continue with this commercial.
2: I thought that I was the only victim of of Jerry Sandusky.
1: Whoa, 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 whoa. You thought you were the only victim. Your story is that you were groomed because you were a member of the Second Mile Charity and were forced to give Jerry Sandusky, now into his late 60s, oral sex a hundred times. You, you thought this never happened to anybody else. You thought this never happened to anybody else. Now, come on. Come on. I realize he's only a teenager at this point, but, but. That smells of a narrative creation, not of a true story.
2: I thought that I was the only one that had to go
1: about the case alone and going through what I went through. All right, that's important. I thought I was the only one going through the case alone because nobody backed up his story. That's what happened for two years. They tried to find a second accuser. They could not find one. So that's why he was terrified of testifying, which he's about to talk about, because he didn't think anyone was going to believe him.
2: It was extremely hard. When I first came out at the Silent No More Foundation, and
1: he helped me. Hold on. The Silent No More Foundation did not exist at the time because there was no Silent No More book, because the book didn't come out until after Cherry Sadowski's trial. So right there, we got a problem
2: get past the initial shock. He talked to me like I was a person and not a victim. That lifted a big weight off my shoulders. I actually just continued talking to him on a almost everyday basis. He got it. When it came down to the actual hearing, Mike sat in the courtroom with me because i don't know if i would have
1: been able to do that on my own without him being there hold on a second what he's referring to here as the hearing is this grand jury testimony that i alluded to where he could not do it the first two times they decided the third time they would have him read his testimony which i've never heard of before with mike Gillum right there with him he's acknowledging this element of the story which i'm not a lawyer but Certainly should have been part of Jerry Sandusky's appeal that you have a therapist obviously writing the testimony out to be read by an alleged victim with the therapist there holding his hand. Boy, that's not a problem. Again, by this point, Aaron Fisher's like 16, 17 years old. This is not an eight-year-old child.
2: And turns out that there were more people before me who were victimized by Jerry Sandusky.
1: No, what... Well, what it turns out is that once Mike Curry comes along and now investigators have a witness and they have an alleged victim, now they can more credibly go to hundreds and hundreds of members of the Second Mile charity, all of whom are from horrible backgrounds. They're at-risk kids. A lot of them will probably abuse themselves. They're all poor. they are all got bridges, They've all got probably unemployment issues, drug problems, and they sell bills in front of these people. And suddenly, yes, a couple, not many, came forward with uh, lacking uh, stories lacking credibility or any uh, sense of logic to them uh, that uh, were cobbled together to create a smoke and mirrors case. But that's, that's what really happened there.
2: They were there fighting against the, the same monster that I was fighting against. After- yeah, the imaginary monster.
1: The imaginary monster under the bed.
2: After the court hearing, I met with all the victims that were there to... Thank them for helping and putting this monster behind bars and helping other children who might have been sexually abused
1: if we didn't. Whoa, 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 wait, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, (laughs) um, If that's the case, then uh, there's many, many problems in that if you know the full story of Aaron Fisher. But one of them is that Aaron Fisher still uh, was extensively in Jerry Sandusky's life after he came forward with that first vague allegation. In fact, his mother still used Jerry Sandusky as a babysitter after they went to the school claiming some semblance of vague, uh, I don't even know if you would call it sexual abuse, but some sort of inappropriate touching. this This whole story is just made up crap
2: it was it was a great feeling like it was like i did something right a lot of people who who have been sexually abused that that don't have the courage to stand up and say that
1: that's what happened to them know that it's not your f- and say that's what happened to them and say that's what happened to them. not tell their stories of what happened to them have the courage to say that's what happened to them Fault. you're not alone and
2: Know that you have a lot of people who will be standing in your corner. A lot of people that you've never met. You might not get the chance to meet me and I'm standing in your corner. Keep pushing. You're doing the right thing. Get in touch with the Silent No More Foundation and you'll you'll see for yourself. I don't think that I would be where I'm at now had it not been for the Silent No More Foundation.
1: I don't think I would be where I'm at now If not for the Silent No More Foundation, again, to be clear from a timeline standpoint, the foundation did not exist when he made the allegation. Now, maybe he's mixing and matching his therapist, Mike Gillum. Where he is now is about to be divorced from his wife, who claims that he's a rapist. Uh, He's also, by the way, fathered uh, a couple illegitimate children with a woman uh, who was actually a a teenager at the time. Uh, He... I have credible allegations that he is still now as a uh, late 20s uh, adult male uh, carousing for teenage girls in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, which is the armpit of the universe. Uh, this is this, a guy who just got in a major car accident and almost killed himself <laughs> wrecking his, his GT. So I, I'm not sure exactly what he means by where I am, but yeah, he would not be rich. That's for sure. And that appears to be what he's saying here. Thank God for Mike Gillum, because without Mike Gillum convincing me that I could get away with this, I never would be rich and I would never have these expensive sports cars to be working on. Right. That's exactly what this is. And this is a commercial for other people to do the same thing for Mike Gillum. By the way, we've asked Mike Gillum to come on this program and not gotten any response, which is, I'm sure, very shocking to people. But I would love to to have a conversation with Mike Gillum or Aaron Fisher. Aaron Fisher has also ducked me. I I have been to Aaron Fisher's house. I've been to his mom's house. I've been to the Dunkin' Donuts where he tries to pick up teenage girls. For some reason, he doesn't want to talk to me. His soon-to-be ex-wife, though, she's talking to me. And hopefully we'll do so uh, publicly sometime soon. All right. Uh, What I mentioned earlier, the Patriots game. I'll I'll finish this on a a lighter note. I do think it's significant that um, Tom Brady appears to have played his last game with the New England Patriots after they lost in the playoffs yesterday. Judging from his press conference, it certainly sounds like it's his last game with the Patriots. And there's a weird phenomenon that happens with super superstars and I would put uh, Tiger Woods in this category. I would put Michael Phelps in this category. That people uh, who are just so phenomenal, Michael Jordan was kind of like this too, but maybe to a lesser degree. People who, whose achievements are just so incomprehensible. In a weird way, they're actually underrated because we can't truly grasp it. We, I don't think we fully appreciate what the hell they have done. And for Tom Brady as a sixth-round draft pick, to win six Super Bowls, to win 17 division titles, to go to eight straight conference championships in a league that is built for parity and basically built on socialistic principles uh, is never going to happen again. Never. I mean, he's, and he's still a good quarterback at the age of 42, which might never happen again uh, either. So I actually think this is an underrated story. We're going to miss Tom Brady not necessarily because he was so good, but because it created an enormous amount of interest and an intriguing narrative uh, to the entire NFL saga. Plus, he was a villain to most of the league. You need a good villain. He's a celebrity. I mean, how are you ever going to find another uh, celebrity of that level, of that level, in the NFL. It's very difficult. I mean, just not because of achievement, but because of media fragmentation and what have you to ever get that famous as Tom Brady is. Tom Brady is as famous as you can get. I mean, he's so famous that even before he won his six Super Bowls, he got into the reproductive hall of fame when he impregnated one supermodel, dumped her for another supermodel and impregnated her. I mean, basically the same time, and by the way, remain friends with both of them. Now that that is a a man who belongs in the reproductive hall of fame, right there, not not just the NFL you know, Pro Football Hall of Fame. That is the reproductive hall of fame, and I'm not even a huge Tom Brady fan. I can respect, well, I can respect his reproductive prowess, but I can also respect I can also respect what he's done on the football field. But we're gonna miss. Tom Brady at the New England Patriots. And I I really don't think we fully appreciate it. I mean, heck, winning the Super Bowl at 41 years old for the sixth time? Really? Really. You cannot be serious. But that's never going to happen again. Just like there's never going to be another Tiger Woods again. There's never going to be another Michael Phelps again. I think what Tiger Woods did this year is incredibly underrated, especially since I thought he was totally toast and done. To win the Masters, tie Sam Snead's record, win the President's Cup as a captain and as a player, all at 42 years old? thats It's just absurd. It's
2: just flat-out ridiculous.
1: But, uh, you know, we're going to miss these guys because they're not coming around again. Because even if they're that good, there's too much parity in all these sports and... It's impossible to get to that level of celebrity. And to get, you know, in order to create a compelling narrative, you need a giant figure, a giant celebrity. And uh, Tom Brady certainly fits that bill. There are some rumors that he might be coming here to Los Angeles to start the new stadium, which makes sense because the Chargers, who need a quarterback, are not selling any tickets at this brand-new billion-dollar stadium in Los Angeles. Tom Brady comes to town. Guess what? They'll be selling tickets because he's a celebrity, and that's what sells in Los Angeles. So that kind of makes sense, and it wouldn't surprise me if that's what ends up happening. All right, that'll do it for this edition of the World According to Zig podcast. As is always the case, I only ask two things of you. Please make sure to uh, share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com.
0: Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should. Oh, I don't know.
2: Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheeks. S H E E X. Sheeks. Try Sheeks for thirty nights, risk free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code twelve twelve and get forty dollars off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com. Promo code twelve twelve. Sleepcoolnow.com. One two one two.